Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is The Lightning of Possible Storms, a collection of short fiction that reads like a novel. It includes stories about a mad scientist trying to steal his son's dreams, a story where a personification of capitalism is trying to impress his boss by winning a contest at work, a story about a Hollywood producer who just decides to adapt a bunch of explosions, uh, and many other stories, some funny, some terrifying, Salima Nawaz uh, says that it's cheerfully horrifying and full of the unexpected. Suzette Mayer says it's beautifully written and expertly composed. And I say, uh, it's time you read this book. I've been working on it for almost 20 years, and I'm excited to share it with you. So please go to PossibleStorms.com. Again, that's PossibleStorms.com, and you'll find out a lot more about this book and some of the bonuses that you can get when you buy this book. Let's get on with the show. I'm talking to Dennis Cooley, uh, one of my great uh, writing teachers uh, and a you know very uh, respected and influential poet, especially here in you know, Winnipeg. Uh, and uh, Dennis has got three new books out. <laughs> He's always you know just putting out some amazing stuff. And uh, I'd like to ask you just to start with Dennis to read from uh, at least two of those books. Uh, one from, you've got two books out of Turnstone Press, so it'd be great for you to read from one of those books. And then also you've got a book from, a third book from At Bay Press. Um, so if you could just read a little bit from when the bestiary and the muse sings, I'd really appreciate it. Because okay, I really you, like you, hearing you read. You're one of the only people I like to hear read. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, you say things like that and I may just read nonstop. Uh, okay, anyway, here we go. This is uh, from the bestiary. It's a collection of Creatures, many of them domestic, many uh, farm animals. But here's here are pigs. Meanwhile, pigs talk. They don't keep them much to themselves. There'd be whiskered ruminations on dung and flies. Cherish the close and convivial inquiries. Join in their song of chop and dandelions. Daily probe the state of turnips. Consider with gravitas the bulge of cabbage. Old geezers on the porch sizing up the neighbors. Though genial in patience, the pigs rave and swear. Rings will wash over. Just you wait. Just you wait and see the sun will surely hit in a spot sweeter than a slop pail full of rotten potatoes. Also, and not to be poo-pooed, the flies will arrive in a strange sizzle, a hard lacquer in their gaze. The pigs will grow miscreant, tail twistingly giddy with all the guzzling and slurping, crazed with the delicacies, sucking them down, blue flies, shiny as candies. Those are the pigs. I don't know if you were in the visual. We had the wonderful illustration with it. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. (laughs) Okay, and this from The Muse Sings. This is called Dear Dubé. 
for Paulette Dubé. Though I grow doubtful whether Our Lady of Perpetual Help Pool Hall still saves from miscues or rescues anyone, I want to be there. I want to be without hesitation, lifted from inertia, a pool ball white as a leper, interloper in collusion among. The red and rolling hearts want to carom among the blue and brown and green, see the black and pink and yellow ones perpetually rolling and shining. There where they brush against the cushions, nudge other hearts that click happily in collision. I want to be a part of the thousand shocks flesh is heir to, that pool of help and forgiveness. Exactly when their lines true, they clear the table with all the joy and clatter they can muster. Les habitués des billets, as once they wrapped the dead Mary, Queen of Scots, in felt from her billiard table, a final game of billets doux. And you, cool pool hall poet, when they chalk one up, you ain't even flustered, are you? Indubitably you, oh dooby, oh dooby, dooby do. Oh, that's great. Now, Dennis, before we kind of dive into the books more specifically, I want to talk a bit about your kind of overall, like, broad process. Because when I think back all the time to the creative writing class that I took with you back in the day, where I met Gregory Kamichik and Slima Nawaz and John Toon, it was just a, a just a really a class we all still talk about is, you know, one being just just chock full of people who ended up publishing. Almost everybody from that class ended up publishing a book. It was really unreal. Yeah, was uh, in fact, one time me and Gregory were walking uh, around through McNally Robinson after going to somebody's book launch, and we ran into, uh, I forget her name of some, but there was like an older woman who was taking the class. She published a book <laughs> coming out of the class about her, like, Ooh, you know, I, her I, life story. Uh, and, you know, like every single person in that class, you know, we were actually even just talking about that. And then we like walked past another person who you know, <laughs> published a book at that class, you know. Um, but one thing I really sticks with me uh, from that class and from like your teaching about creative writing is this idea you had uh, of mining the site. I remember the way you explained it was, you know, you kind of find a site, you know, something that you find, think is interesting and you want to dig deep down into. And then you just sort of, as a writer, you think of all the different ways you could mine that site. You know, you could just uh, attack it, the subject from any number of angles and write, you know, a, a ton of different takes or tests. And it just sort of, I always, I, I've been very, um, very much found this to be a powerful lesson, this approach of just sort of all the, thinking through all the different ways one could kind of mine this material once you kind of found a vein and, and looking for where's the site, you know, where I could maybe get uh, some interesting stuff out of the ground. I just wonder if you could talk a bit about that idea of mining the site and kind of, you can certainly do it more articulately than I could, but uh, I'm curious about that concept uh, a bit and, and also just how you practically do that. So when you actually go to sit down and write, the Muse Sings, say, or uh, Bestiary, or Cold mm. Press Moon. Uh, would you actually, one, how do you settle on a, a sort of site to mine? And then two, like, how do you go across, go through mining that site? You described the process, I think, about as well as anyone could. 
but yeah, that's what I've done uh, from a way back. I suspect to some degree, many writers do do that to some degree. That uh, you you your mind takes you somewhere for whatever reasons, and once it's there, uh, the neurons start breaking loose and colliding and and open up real possibilities. I, it's I don't know if you find this or other writers find this, but I think if, if once your brain uh, gets operating off a text, it starts generating almost uh, neurotically. Not I, I, sorry, <laughs> neurotically. Neuronically, I suppose would be a better way of putting it. Uh, it starts sparking things go fire there, but it's more deliberate for me too, as you as you were describing it. I uh, find something that uh, usually something I'm intensely interested in or enjoy enormously. Sometimes I find it by accident. Um, I got onto the uh, Dracula poems, which I did as a collection. I got onto them when I was first working fairy tale poems quite a long time ago. And I said, okay, I've got these well-known ones I'm working on. What else is out there? So I think, well, there's Dracula and there was Frankenstein. In fact, they show up in this latest book in some ways, uh, the, the, um, uh, the book Cold Press Moon. So that kind of um, thinking about playing with uh, a site, but it also takes me to research and say, well, what else is out there? I read things and I, I use the internet a lot. Say, well, you know, who's this, who's this Theseus guy again? And you start spinning off and takes you somewhere and somebody's got you over and work in a mazes and then you think of a pun with, with mazes and corn and you're into wheat fields and you can, you can move around off those kind of connections that the website really enables. Uh, but all of the sites are ones that I really like and I find stimulating and, uh, and uh, fascinating and enjoyable. I pretty, really appreciate your comment about uh, the uh, pleasure, the joy in these things there. Uh, I uh, have a kind of infantile, taken infantile pleasure in, in play and bad puns, as, as I'm sure you, you know. <laughs> uh, but it's, that, so it's not, a, it's not a, any kind of systematic or methodical thing. It's more a kind of focus. And I don't simply stay in one of those sites. I've uh, got many projects going at the same time. So that, I mean, there are here are these three books and it may look to uh, someone as if I got really busy for the last year, but these things are, have all come out of years of earlier work too. I've got uh, the biggest project I, I've been ever working, ever been working on. I began in 1989, I'm still working on it. Uh, and it's got huge. Uh, and had very spin-offs already. So it's a kind of sustained focus for me. Uh, and uh, and I, I, at the moment, have a couple other projects in the go as, I'm, as I was kind of finishing up these ones. I don't know if that's any help to you, but how do you do it? Anyway, I get in it well, and I, I make notes like everyone else. I make notes and I draft things and I write down phrases I think might be handy somewhere. Uh, and I gather them up and I, and I go back in drafts. I've got all kinds of notes and drafts that I re-enter and pillage for other purposes. The impression I got uh, taking that class, the thing that really impressed me about the idea uh, is that it 
I have maybe a more methodical approach than you do, but I, I will sit, I, I really, like since taking that class, I, I generated a lot of projects and, you know, a whole books. I just sort of sitting and thinking about um, that sort of, how, well, how would I mine it? Like, like when I wrote Clockfire, for example, I was thinking about the theater and I was thinking, okay, um, if I'm in the theater, like I'll sit down there and I'll think like through it in a kind of systematic way. It's like, okay, well, what's in the theater? There's a curtain in the theater. There's chairs in the theater. There's a stage. There's, you know, like, I'll just go through, there's like sandbags. Like I would just run through them all and like, just think, but, 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 but I think the the difference that it made to me is um, what, what what I kind of learned from you in many respects with that, like alongside, like, oh, you just kind of think through that what's, what's here in this fertile ground but you'll actually do drafts. Like you'll actually write a poem. I'll write a poem. Like I'll, so I'll write like 200, 300 poems to get down to like maybe 80 poems I like in that area. But I'll, I'll test things out. Like I, I find that a lot of writers, aside from you, uh, one thing I think that separates you from a lot of writers is that you will actually sit there and write 500 poems on the topic as opposed to sitting there and trying to think what are the you know 80 thing you know like you'll, you'll kind of like actually do the work to mine the site you know uh, and i see a lot of people and my tendency even that i have to fight against with <laughs> kind of adopting your process in some way is i have this tendency where i'll, I'll sit there and i'll think of 10 poems and i'll think okay well which of these poems should i write what i think i learned from you is you should write 10 poems yeah. <laughs> you should write all 20 you know write two versions of each poem like just the writing is the sort of uh like you don't want to get away from the writing and too far into the research or too far into being analytical about it, uh, but really, you know, have those things on the side and informing what the writing is doing. Yeah. Well, I, I, am sure you do this as well. And I suppose most other writers do versions of this as well. I move a lot of things internally. I've got a, some notes over here and I've got a poems coming along here and I think, well, you know, I could just pull this out of here and work it in here somewhere. It may just yeah. give me a, a nice little turn and a, or pick up that, that second line in a nice way. So I'm constantly moving. I move even from project to project saying, uh, I could maybe put this over in that, in that, that uh, Love and Adroyland project, my work over there. So I, I'm pretty uh, uh, willing to transpose words, phrases, whole poems, sections, uh, into in different sites. That's another uh, thing I credit uh, you with is when I do that. <laughs> I did it recently. I was stuck with this comic uh, a project I was doing with the Gregory trying to think what am I going to do in these. I knew I had like four pages I had to fill up. And then I I went to like, you know, well, I had this novel draft. And I was like, I'll just pull a fragment from that novel draft. And now all of a sudden the mother is like telling the story from this other thing to her kid at bedtime, you know, and it works, you know, like it, that, that kind of, uh, because I've got all this stuff, like you said, like all this stuff, I've actually put it on paper somewhere, even if it's not done, uh, and I can start to pick it up and move it around. Like, I, I remember thinking like, that was something that was really powerful to learn from you was like that if you can find the right uh, set of things that are going to spark your imagination, you know, if you can kind of almost like set up a set of a series of conditions <laughs> for your imagination to spark. And like, you know, these things are always like, I, I'm more fascinated about crows. So anytime I'm stuck, I'll just start thinking about crows. How can I get crows in here somehow? You know, uh, let me tell and, you, and there's a playfulness to it. 
yeah, let me tell you of the beastery in Crows. I, uh, God knows when the uh, this manuscript started, but it began with, uh, I don't know, 40 or 50 Crow poems and 40 or 50 bee poems. The bee poems ended up being almost totally gone, and I had took cut back the crows because I thought, well, I got to do some more things and get a more variety here. Uh, but it, at the, I was originally going to call this the birds and the bees, <laughs> and uh, I mainly mostly crow and and uh, bee poems. And uh, it's since then migrated. Okay, what are the other possibilities? You've got creatures, uh, and then I think you think, well, there's the thing, this thing called the bestiary collection of beast and creature animals. Spread out and see where you may go with that. Uh, I moved out there and picked up some farm animals and some domestic animals, and they became part of the bestiary. And then, of course, you can look at beasts and fable. You can look at beasts and uh, you know how science treats beasts. You, you know, you can you can look at that whole distinction with how we don't think of humans as animals. My kid was trying to correct me the other day because I said humans are animals. And she's like, humans are animals, you know, because she's yeah. like five years old, right? But that's yeah. how you think, you know, that's how you're trained to think. Um, and, and so all of a sudden now you're into that great thematic space of having a tension. You know, I always feel like there's a poem there when there's a tension, you know, uh, between, you know, with the thing, two, two sort of ideas are kind of coming into conflict. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to maybe the literal sure. conflict the story. Uh, the, 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 the creatures, as I prefer to call them, especially in this collection, uh, which I think is a, in some ways may sound a little sentimental, but I, don't, I think not, and it has a further advantage of it names us within this very nicely. But the, uh, the creatures are, have very human, human-like qualities in many ways, too, and I, I do that a lot. These ant creatures are, are often fairly uh, similar humans in, in, in their and their affections or their anxieties or whatever. Uh, the pig shows up, uh, a creature that I really like, a really smart creature in many ways. Affection, he talks with he talks with the farm kid. Uh, this actually came from, from uh, my own experience that uh, you, can, you can talk with animals in, a, in some kind of way. Yeah, sure, that whole, yeah, that way that thing, the thing is responding to you and, and uh, I find it so interesting. The, the danger I find of this process, I will say it though, is, and I'm curious to know how you approach this, is um, what I've found is once I'm in a fertile kind of site in this manner and I, and I, you know, I can drum up, like all of a sudden the problem isn't coming up with new things and drafts and ideas. I can drum up 500 pages of something relatively simply. It's a matter of how do I, where do I stop? What do I, what do, what do I put the bounds or the limits on it? Like, how do you actually determine that you're done that project when they have these protein changeability? I, uh, I've taken for years to, to quoting uh, the um, Malamy, uh, who said, a poem is never done, it's only abandoned. Uh, and I remember when I first heard it, as an under, when I was an undergraduate, I was angry and thinking this is an excuse for being lazy or whatever. But uh, for many years now, I'm thinking, oh, this is actually, for me at least, and I, th I suspect for almost everybody else, uh, is the case, you know, you, you give up what ends something, exhaustion, uh, sense you've got to move on, boredom, uh, the demands of, of, of your publisher, day-to-day uh, uh, -day responsibilities, uh, I, I had a debate with uh, with uh, someone in the last few years who, who uh, 
uh, wrote a whole lot about poetry, but she was really offended when I said, no, they're not perfect, and I don't want them to be perfect, and I don't think you can make them perfect. That perfection is a is a desire for that may be understandable, but I think it's it's a, it's mistaken because it's a, not possible and it's not desirable. Uh, that, uh, I think it's Thank a similar you. kind of argument. Yeah, uh, you abandon. Yeah, it's not done. Uh, it's not fin- it's not finished. It's done. You're for the time being. But also, I go back and revise poems all the time, including poems that are published. Uh, so I don't have the sense that that's it. There's nothing more for me to do with it, or it's over. But saying, okay, that that version is now over. It's into print. Why, why do you say it's not desirable to try to get that perfection? Well, what would what would perfection be? Uh, I, I, you put a little pressure on the notion. I think that it probably leads you inevitably to thinking of fixity uh, and uh, a kind of condition. Uh, such that no changes could make it any any better, uh, uh, or or at least or at, the le- at least different. So see that that's it. Nothing. There could be nothing better. I mean, we you know that story everybody tells about in various religions, uh, how it's blasphemous to think you have a perfect made a perfect carpet. Only God could could be perfect. Uh, so you even build in the flaw in it. Uh, the, uh, but I'm kind of arguing probably you will be doing that anyway, that, uh, I, by some standards. You know, this line should have been shorter. You know? I mean, those are all debatable. What's, what is satisfactory? Yeah, what is good? What is bad? Highly debatable. Well, it changes all the time, right? I, yeah, somebody yeah. was asking me the other day about how much description should be in a thing you know and i was saying well you know if you're writing an 18th century novel then this one answer and if you're writing like a modern thriller it's another answer like it's so it's so specific to the time or to your like mood in a manner that you're trying to create or, or what have you i know i have a tendency towards trying to get a perfectionism but what i find is when i achieve it when i do get to to the point where i feel it's kind of close to perfect near perfect it's it's usually has died at that point <laughs> like because I've, I've taken all the raw edges off of it you know and it has it just starts there's that ineffable way it kind of starts to lose life like as it gets too polished the stock movie i but i'd make a different distinction between the notions of perfection and the notions of uh of high accomplishment uh that uh I work, it may not be apparent, but I work very hard in the, in the poems I write. I revise and work them, rethink them and move them, dump them. Uh, so it's not a case of saying, well, I kind of have a, a good go for a week or two and say, here are three poems. Uh, I work on them again and again and again, uh, but, they're not, but they're not perfect because uh, the, uh, they can't be. You're also one of the people who first brought to my mind the... Um, the different ways one could break a line. And you wrote a very famous, you know, well-known essay on this called Breaking and Entering, which I would you know, encourage people yeah. to find. But I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about your philosophy in a nutshell about how to break, you, you break lines or approach, you know, line break, or, or even just using the page to lay out a poem because you do a lot of, you know, interesting things on the page itself. Yes. So how well, do you think through like how to arrange the poem on the page? Yeah. Okay, I can say quite a few things. Let me let me just say something about the visual page. That uh, I mean, I, I find it visually far more interesting to have 
ink distributed on the page, uh, not exactly unevenly, but certainly not uh, not systematically uh, off off a off a line or even series of indentations. Uh, that but. Uh, when the ink is distributed irregularly, I think that makes a more uh, elegant surface visually. Uh, and you've got a lot more configurations. And of course you can handle those to uh, create all kinds of effects visually. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, there's that, but uh, you're asking more mainly, I take it about the, um, the, the sense of line. Why would you, where would you end a line or break a line? And why would you do that? So for a long time, the principle of lineation uh, uh, was um, uh, metered feet uh, and grammatical units. They usually coincided in traditional verse. So uh, you know, your, your line's gonna end on a, on a comma, a pause, and that's gonna be the end of a phrase. Uh, so that went on for centuries. So the kind of a sense of, of neatness and recursion uh, and the, the satisfaction, the challenge and satisfaction of filling in uh, those patterns with interesting variations. So that there, there, there's real, um, uh, real difficulty in doing that and real gratification for the writer and the reader. You know, and, uh, who could not like those poems where it's say, ah, there it is, just dropped in there just so nicely. Uh, so that, that was the principle for centuries. Uh, and and not an awful lot changed actually until into the 20th century or, or, or just before the uh, 20th century, you get people like uh, Gerard Manny Hopkins, for example, who does wild things that uh, I still, I can't figure out what he did actually. Uh, I read those essays. He talks about the sprung rhythm. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what they are. People, some people don't understand it, but I don't, but it's really wild. Uh, but you, you, well, you're well into the 20th century before very many people really, uh, abandon uh, the a traditional metered uh, uh, and, uh, and grammatically measured line. Uh, so you get a kind of opening off that, but the kind of stuff I'm talking about is, is even, even more of a departure. You say, what if you use the end of the line as a, as a, as a suspension, which has always been there, but he really emphasized this and develop it. You can create all kinds of interesting effects. Uh, Mostly it's a principle of, of suspension. Uh, okay, we're here, uh, now what? Uh, the, um, one of the effects to use this prosody uh, is to create a sense of false completion. Saying, ah, oh, it's over there. Uh, 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 you better watch out for the red wheelbarrow. I mean, to, to turn around a, 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 a Carlos Williams poem. Uh, but it seems that the anxiety is the color red. You better watch out for the red. Uh, and then the next time moves into the wheels, oh, you're, 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 you're taken aback. So part of this is a principle of surprise and perhaps even betrayal. I think what angers some people is that they feel betrayed. Wait a minute, you tricked me. This is what I thought and now this is what I got. Uh, so there, there is that sense of surprise and, and closures or parent closures and reopenings. That run off that 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 holding, but there's also a, a very different effect of uh, of hesitation that could suggest uh, anxiety uh, of uh, of uncertainty, uh, of wonder, of surprise, of not knowing what what next, what 
could I say next? What is happening next? Um, and you can get some very interesting rhythms. Could be suggest. Could suggest uh, uh, love. Could suggest awe. Um, uh, so you often get off those small lines and those suspensions. You can get a lot of hesitation. Uh, what I do perversely is often combine the effects, and it, and it, it, it can kind of make a, a kind of a, a, a bit of an annoyance or a trial, I suppose, for some people. But those are the two major principles. One thing I'll see you do a lot is break an actual word in half where the first half of it works as its own word. So you know, you'll have something like, um, well, a really simple thing that I'll see you do is, you know, I did int, <laughs> right? Or, you know, it kind of reads, as you say, it's, it's, it seems as to be a complete uh, thing or even, you know, uh, a word like, you know, end low, the, you know, like that kind of completion. You think you've read a complete word, but actually it's part of a different word. Now you get at least at minimal, you get a double the meaning. Maximally, you get, you know, a bunch of other yeah. possible ways to read these things. Yeah. And it really opens up uh, the meaning a lot. Uh, I remember being struck by that when I was, you know, like a young man in school trying to kind of really like get a handle on the craft of some of this writing. I really was really struck by the uh, way that you were so willing to turn over to the reader uh, different ways to read this poem. Whereas I was so used to coming at things from the point of view of you want to control precisely how the reader is getting information out of this thing. Uh, yeah. And not that you don't do that. I mean, you have, you know, your ways in which you're leading and misleading, but I think there's just this, interesting willingness that you had uh, that struck me, you know, this interesting willingness to kind of put the reader in the driver's seat in a certain respect. Yeah. Well, I think when you're right, when you write in some ways you are acting as a reader too, uh, when you make choices saying, will this work or how might it, how might it work? What, what's, what happens if I open that gap there? Um, I mean, you're often off, off instinct or half conscious, especially if you've done it for many years, you, you're, you're, you process stuff often without even realizing you're doing it, but but that's a good part of it. Uh, uh, what what is it? What might the reader's expectations be? So I I often uh, I guess in some ways betray readers or play tricks on them. Uh, the uh, so quite a few of the pieces are just smart assy things. Uh, I shouldn't say just. I think I think they're they're not ju just that, but they're smart assy things. Uh, say look at this. And then you're here. No, you're here. My God, no, that's happened. Uh, and so. Uh, uh, I often read them, those ones fast. I am sure they're not easy for people to follow by in a first hearing. It, it, there's a real nimbleness to it, though, and, and I think it's it's a uh, it really inserts a personality, I think, into the work in in, in a way um, that maybe I don't always see, you know, in, in people's poetry. Yeah, you know, like either they're sometimes they're trying very hard to put a personality into it, but they're failing because they're not willing to play around. And like, uh, be nimble and ha and have that. Um, and they're just trying to have too tight a rein on the voice, if that makes sense. I'm sure I'm guilty of it myself. Well, you can write poetry of many kinds, uh, uh, and uh, I, as a reader, I like reading all kinds of stuff. And I like to think, as a writer, that I I have quite a quite a range of factor writing, uh, tone, rhythm, voices. Uh, the uh, but you you can write quite quite traditional poetry that can be to this day that are that are, are powerful and moving 
and sometimes it's I think if people are, are if they're quiet, uh, the uh, if you say if you if you were uh, devoted uh, devoted Christian, uh, it's probably more likely, but not necessarily, the case that you would write quieter poems that are a little more totally subdued. I would I would guess out of, out of that sense of your belief or your personality or who you are, what you most believe in. Uh, the uh, so maybe maybe I'm just saying what you're saying that uh, uh, your your style comes so much out of out of where you stand. Can you talk a bit about Cold Press Moon and how, kind of how it compares to Bestiary and and what it was? Were you actually working on both those books at the same time, or were they just being published at the same time? Like, is there a way in which you see them as complementary? Uh, well, I see see any number of ways. Uh, there a lot of the working was coinciding. Uh, that um, and and I, I guess I'm trying to think back in this. I, I guess I was working in them kind of pretty much at the same time. Turnstone said to me, uh, I, "I can't remember how they got onto this one, uh, but anyway, they said, what if we do these two books as a set?'" Uh, this was several years ago. I said, "Oh yeah, I like that idea." So they talked about various ways of doing them. Uh, so I was kind of working on the pretty much the same, uh, much the same time. I'm trying to remember the chronology of their being processed through to uh, uh, readiness for publication. One, uh, they both came at about the same time uh, to the press for for uh, for, the, for their uh, production. Uh, Robert Buddy uh, edited, uh, uh, did the editing, and he sent them in together. They came to me, and I had looked at it and said, "Okay, here's what I think about this or that," and we sent them under the press at the same time. So I think the composition was close to coinciding. They're almost uh, parallel in time. I'm a little vague about this, but that's my memory, as I said here. And can you talk a bit about Cold Press Moon and what, what that book's about or how, how that sort of compares to what the Beast Theory is about? Uh, well, this is, um, totally, it's very different. Uh, this is a rewriting of some of the fairy tales that uh, most of us heard as kids and read to our kids to this day, I hope and expect, I expect and hope. Uh, the, um, so you get uh, some of the standard figures, you get Snow White and you get uh, Rapunzel and you get uh, uh, the uh, crazy little uh, guy with a woman spinning the, spinning the, Rapunzel, thank you. Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a series of these things you get uh, Hansel and Gretel. Uh, not, not very many that I deal with, uh, uh, and I move them again into uh, other uh, stretches. I um, pick up some uh, uh, Dracula. I pick up Frankenstein, uh, but uh, what I did with them. Uh, they're, they're such wonderful things to work with. They're there in a kind of powerful way in everybody's uh, psyche. And these things are, are um, they're much more, uh, stories is much more violent and, and, uh, and um, unnerving, I think, the, uh, these fairy tale pieces. And uh, where the creaturely poems tended to be comical and tender and, uh, and uh, kind of affirming uh, these 
are, are kind of troubling, I think, uh, in, in many ways. Maybe readers uh, won't find that, but I, I suspect that some of the will, at least, uh, as they deal with uh, uh, roles that are precarious or destructive or ensnaring uh, uh, and I've tried to uh, turn many of them into a kind of contemporary time in a, in a, in a, in a partial way. When I tell the, um, the story, retell the story of Hansel and Gretel, Hansel and Gretel largely move through that kind of world as we know it, a force and this witch. Uh, but that world turns into a, not a surreal world, world, I don't particularly interest in that, but almost a sci-fi world in some ways. But the father himself, uh, even as he is aware of and responsive to uh, a, a kind of medieval world of, of forests and farms, turns out is also a kind of very contemporary figure living in a house in a city, uh, uh, behind, beside which cars flare by with their taillights. Uh, and he's there waiting on the porch with a light for his kids. So I kind of move that, these things around a fair bit. Uh, the characters, that same character, the father, addresses readers and appeals uh, to, to them about how he might be perceived. Uh, it will, will people think that he's done ill by his children? And so I get a kind of variation on these stories that deal with also some contemporary concerns and worries and frets. You seem to, to me to come uh, often back to fables or fairy tales or pop culture kind of myths in in this sort of way even to some degree um and i'm just i'm just curious to know like what is it that you find most uh interesting about that sort of ground because you you have returned as you say you mentioned uh, you you've done a book all about dracula you know you've done books that kind of again focus other books that focus on the kind of fairy tales and so on um I'm just curious to know what you, what your attraction is to those sorts of, to reinventing those kinds of tales. Yeah. Well, the, the, the realm is, is um, it, part or comes from or, or brings us to maybe a, a realm that's um, a little irreal, forbidden. Uh, you know, what happens out, out there in the forest? Uh, and that what happens in that in that that shack? What's happening in the, the castle, uh, wherever there might be? I mean, I, I I've not done a much particular interest in doing uh, uh, kind of um, detective stories or things like that. Uh, but it's um, there's a realm of, of danger and risk, uh, and also in daring. I mean, Bloody Jack is this outlaw figure. Dracula is an outlaw figure. Uh, and they transgress in various ways. In fact, they're both bloody figures, aren't they? I mean, uh, I, I didn't think uh, until somebody said to me, you're kind of obsessed with blood, aren't you? Uh, the, uh, but I mean, Dracula is a, is, a, in, is a kind of Robin, or sorry, not Dracula, Bloody Jack is a kind of Robin Hood figure in, 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 in various ways. And I construe my Dracula in some ways as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, as a radical, he, he at least one poem talks about himself as a red. He's, he's redistributing things. You've you closed the banks, you've shut down the currency, nothing's moving now. And uh, I'm, I'm breaking up uh, these banks. I, I'm breaking into your vaults. Uh, he's, a, he's the red of his time in some ways. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of interested in those figures. I, uh, and I, I suppose that some of these fairy tale figures are, are certainly there. Uh, but uh, it's tough, you know, with the, the, there's a kind of risk doing those fairy tale poems as I did, did them. Uh, I think one of the first responses of readers are going to be, what's happening in gender in here? Uh, danger terrain uh, uh, these days. But I have a lot of sympathy uh, for some of the male ca- characters too, as the father in, uh, in, um, uh, uh, as like Gretel one, the father you were just talking about or a different one? Handsome Gretel. Uh, but I have a fair bit of sympathy for the Rumpelstiltskin figure, mm. uh, who's, who's yearning, looking for some love and tenderness. He's, he's in love with this young woman. Does she, how could she not see this? You know, and of course she's unavailable to him. So I mean, he's a hor- horrific figure in many ways, but, but there's a kind of yearning and loneliness. That's a, that's a, one of my themes. Uh, yearning and loneliness runs through just about all of the books in one form or another. How about with the muse sings? Because I, feel, I when I when when I first saw this book, I thought to myself, I can't believe that Cooley hasn't already written this book. <laughs> like it seems so so sensible and obvious a topic for you, like to actually just take the figure of the muse, uh, you know, the person that you know, the goddess who inspires poetry, and um, you know, to kind of here is a these poems as you know attempts to invoke the muse what happens when that goes awry you know and, and the, the muse itself as a sort of the spurning lover lover you know spurning the advances of the poet it it, it 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 it's such a perfect um as you say it's 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 something that kind of just ties together so nicely and neatly a lot of your recurrent themes uh, and then just have a direct connection to poetry uh, which you know you, you tend to kind of of course be focused on yeah. So, yeah. so I'm curious you to know get... how you how you kind of started with that project and uh, and and kind of how that hits you and how you developed with the, that. The muse sings. The muse sings. Yeah. Mm. The uh, I'm not sure exactly where it started. Um, I, I I know I know where the 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 publishing part of it. Uh, uh, again, so that it's actually a very simple answer. Uh, the publisher uh, at Bay Press, Matt Judry, uh, um, had asked, "Could we meet for lunch?" Uh, it was sure, uh, that, uh, and he said, you, "You got a book? I like to do a book." He said, "I got a cool course." He said, "You better believe it." Uh, this is my standard advice to, to poets for a long time has been, <laughs> "Don't be coy. If somebody wants to do your book, you say it's yours." <laughs> They're delighted that you're, somebody wants to publish it. Uh, so I said, okay, uh, good. Uh, uh, what could you do? And I said, well, I, I got a bunch of poems. Uh, I must have been thinking at this point, because I think I said I got a bunch of muse poems. Yeah, I think I did. To check with Matt, but I think that's right. And he said, well, let's see what you can do there. So I went busy and worked on this for the next year or two. And uh, a few years later, eventually, here's the book. Uh, the... Uh, but I don't think it was a particular thing that took me there so much as a kind of, I guess, almost a logical outcome, as you're saying, here you are. Mm-hmm. But uh, why didn't you do it years ago? I do don't you know find, why I didn't do it a long time ago. Do you find yourself uh, just noticing that you've been writing a bunch of poems on this topic or that topic? Or do you find yourself really seeking out topics in a, in a more active way? Uh, I didn't understand that. 
do you find yourself like just looking at the stuff you've been writing and realizing, oh, I've been doing a bunch of muse poems or, yeah. or what have you, or do you find yourself actually sitting down and thinking, what's the place I could look uh, to mine? Like, what's the, like, would you find, I guess, which is kind of comes first for you most of the time? I think it's probably more, well, the combination. Uh, yeah. But, uh, I think more recently it's become the, the latter case of saying, what's, what have I got and where might this go? Uh, or where might it go anywhere? Could uh, has it has any larger uh, potential? I mean, I do that with individual poems too. Say, okay, mm -hmm. could I do anything more with this poem? So it's uh, I do that uh, at that local level and, and uh, or expand a little bit. A lot of the first ones came out of actual out of more uh, identification. I started a long time ago a long poem with the Esteban minor strike. And I still got lots of drafts and notes for it. I hope to get back to it. Uh, but that is when I started writing Bloody Jack. I, uh, and I can't remember why, why that interrupted there, but uh, Bloody Jack came from a radio broadcast in CBC that a, a two friends of mine did. And I heard that and I talked about, about them. Uh, okay, so that was there. And I was also, was, and still am madly excited about Michael Landacci's book, The Collective Works of Billy the Kid. And at that time, I was writing a series of Billy the Kid poems, playing off Michael Landacci's books, and I'm going to write this. And I got about 20 pages, and they just kind of petered out. And I said to Arneson, I don't know what to do. Uh, uh, I, I, I get nowhere. This thing. He said, "Well, is there a local outlaw?" I said, "Well, we just heard the story of Bloody Jack Krachenko, and I'm over there, and then that takes over for the next couple of years." Mm -hmm. But uh, but the uh, but I happened in that by accident. Uh, but the the 1931 Esther uh, Miner's uh, poem I had deliberately chosen and wanted to work on. So it was a combination of those things early on. Saying these are topics. I mean, some kind of came to me out of strong personal experience. My dad dies, I write a poem about that. My mother dies, I write a long poem, a book about that. Uh, so there have been a few of those kinds uh, as well. That uh, So part of it's been prompted by instinct, accident, occasion. Some of them are, are finding sites that I've uh, always been fascinated in. I read, I found a book uh, about uh, space uh, exploration, the, the cosmonauts looking for presents. It's Christmas, and I find this stunning book, and I buy it, take it home, and away I go, playing often with that material. Uh, so, so a lot of things just come off other writers, other books. And, oh, uh, the the longest project I've been going on forever. I'm called Love in the Dry Land, uh, that plays very loosely off. Uh, Sinclair Ross's novel, that's for me and my, my house. And I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of poetry on that terrain. So that's the big project you were talking about that started in 89? Yeah, that's, that yeah, that's the biggest uh, manuscript uh, uh, by you, far. You published some of that, but uh, so you're still doing poems in that uh, direction then. Got what is it about that book that uh, attracts you so? Well, you know, you, you, it may was a good, great fit for me because it come. I, I grew up in Saskatchewan on a Saskatchewan farm. Now it's a generation later, 
but the world that Ross writes about of a, of a dirty 30s Saskatchewan, as just I'm just you know not far from that. I, uh, myself, I'm, I'm you know I'm 20 years I'm a kid 20 years after this, but those stories are all there in the community, and the after effects are still there. Uh, but so also a certain legacy. I mean that world of poverty and of a kind of uh, stoicism uh, that you so that story of the the tacker and Saskatchewan farmer a lot of people laugh at and you know what a bunch of dolts this they're not dolts these are people who have um, learned to contain their hurts and disappointments and they bear them with a kind of stoicism they're filled with emotion and that's what Ross gets that so well um, in his stories, they, more powerfully in some ways for emotionally in short stories than in that novel. But he's, he really has a sense of those people. And, uh, so I find, I find that book really moving uh, in ways that uh, a lot of people apparently don't. Maybe It may be generational, perhaps. I always found that an impressive book. And, 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 but more so in some ways, his short stories, he's say, there's, he has a story, I forget the name of it, but I think it's called The, the Heifer. But it has to do with this. One's a um, One's a well, yeah, that one. That story still to this day, you know, st- yeah. just stuns me. Yeah. And uh, it's a disturbing and fascinating, you know, story. It's also brilliantly structured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God. it really is. Yeah. yeah. He was a really interesting character. He had done a lot of odd experiments, sort of novel dialogue, you know, and uh, he, he does, he's more of an experimentalist in some ways than people give him credit for yeah. as well. Sawbones Memorial. He's yeah, a good example of that. Hardly anybody knows it. Uh, That's the one I'm thinking about. Yeah, I've got it. Sorry, mm-hmm. I've got that book. That's what I'm I, I'm talking about. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. No, he was a very important figure, but he was writing when there were almost no chances for a writer in the prairies, almost none. Mm-hmm. Right? No bookstores. There are no book clubs. There are no internet to, to interview him. Uh, there, there are, nobody's teaching Canadian literature. Nobody's reading Canadian literature. Nobody knows there's Canadian literature, right? They shouldn't. It's indecent to write. He's the son of a puritanical, uh, in a puritanical family. It's indecent to write. He's wants. He's training as a classical musician. He's gay. Uh, you know, uh, he's in this tough little prairie town. Man. Yeah, it's just a fascinating figure, and and, and so again, Dennis is. Three new books are The Bestiary, Cold Press Moon, and The Muse Sings. And, uh, you know, by the time this airs, maybe he has three new books out <laughs> in addition to that. <laughs> but uh, it's a massive body of work. It's well worth checking out. And um, thanks so much for talking to me, Dennis. Uh, well, thank you very much. Take care. Take care.